Welcome to the Talent Pool Podcast. I'm Alan Kaplan, your host and founder and CEO of Kaplan Partners, a retained executive search and board advisory firm headquartered in Philadelphia. My guest today is Marianne Scully, chairman, CEO, and founder of Howard Bancorp and Howard Bank. Howard is a 2.6 billion asset community bank that trades on NASDAQ and is headquartered in Baltimore. Welcome, Marianne. Thank you, Alan. Thanks for having me. So when you opened Howard Bank in 2004, there weren't a lot of women CEOs in the banking industry, let alone starting banks, as I recall. And unfortunately, there aren't that many more today. I'd love to get your viewpoint um, on why that is. And then we're going to talk more about talent, women, diversity, succession in banking. But but why, why is there still this dearth of women at the top of the organization relative to the number of men uh, or even the dearth of diverse people in the C-suite in banking? I don't have a perfect answer, but I'll make the observation that, you know, after 40 plus years in the business, I have commented to a number of my colleagues, both male and female, that I think one of the saddest observations I have to make about the industry is that if somebody had told me 40 years ago that this is what the industry would look like in terms of opportunity for female and diverse candidates, um, I, I, I would have been perhaps too discouraged to go on. I, I, it's a huge surprise. It, it, and, and of course, it's, it's a surprise that's been rolling and building momentum for many, many years. But if you step back, um, it's hard to believe that we haven't made more progress. So why haven't we made more progress? Um, and I, I believe and have said this many times, and you and I might have talked about this before. I think like most problems, and this can be a difficult thing to say, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a two-way road. So part of the road that's controlled by the company and by existing leadership has simply been, um, A, too uncommitted to this. So people were, if you were enlightened, if you were considered to be enlightened management, um, you permitted it to happen. You encouraged a few strong outliers to, quote, go for it, um, but you didn't necessarily view it as a strategic priority. And what happens to anything in a fast-moving, competitive, some days downright cutthroat industry, if something isn't a strategic priority, it just keeps falling to the, to the bottom of the pile. So to say that there hasn't been enough intentionality is very true, and, and it, it only happens if you're very intentional. But I've concluded as I've thought more about it, it starts even before intentionality. It starts with, is this really a strategic priority? Do you really believe that your company and your industry will be much more successful if it is more diverse? And and. And it's hard, more diverse, because if you have different perspectives sitting around the table, 
you are likely to make better decisions. Of and course. you are likely to be more innovative and to be more receptive. So it's as fundamental and in many respects as apolitical as that. But it hasn't been a strategic priority. I, I was was blessed to work for a company where people recognized the talents of women that were there, but was there an intentional effort to hire more women? Not necessarily. It was, let's recognize these people that we've got. Let's make sure they don't have any barriers. That's very different than a strategic priority. Um, And I would say on the other side, though, um, you know, they, they, Let's speak about women first before we talk about minorities, because the minority problem is much more, in my opinion, institutionalized. So the problem that women face is an absence of a perspective and it's it's role models and it's assumptions about the, the responsibilities that you might have. The minority side of things has been much more institutionalized. But if we talk about women, um, you know, first of all, not all women are blessed with um, partners who also view that a uh, family is perhaps stronger if either both parents have something outside of the home that they're passionate about and that they can bring home to their children and say, no, I don't go to work because I need to make the money. I go to work because I really enjoy my job, which is the discussion I used to have with my child. Um, or, you know, if there are two spouses and maybe maybe one of them that is the one that should have most of the financial responsibility is not to meet the stereotype, the, the male in the family. But there, there really aren't as many men, and it's not that men don't help with the dishes or some of them, you know, I'm married to a particularly good cook or don't do the laundry. It's that when you have that conversation at seven o'clock in the morning when the nanny isn't going to show up and you live four hours away from any family and somebody's got to stay home, who stays home? And so there's a familial environment that has made it more difficult. And we and, and for anybody that thinks that's not true, look at what's happened in the pandemic. Look at how many women who have left the workforce. The pandemic affected men and women equally. That's right. Everybody in that family ended up having to deal with children that were learning virtually, you know, five-year-olds who had their first Chrome tablet in their parents' living room. Um, everybody dealt with the childcare issue. But at the end of the day, the people that felt the greatest responsibility for picking up the pieces were women. And that's partly perhaps not a supportive network, but it's also partly that that's where women see themselves still. Um, and, and, and it makes it hard if that's where you see yourself to then be a risk taker. And at the end of the day, to really advance to the upper levels of any company, you have to have a pretty high tolerance for risk, um, both corporate risk and personal risk, because you don't get ahead 
if you only follow the safe path. You don't get ahead if you never have the courage to say, I want a different job and recognize that if somebody says, no, you can't have that job, you then have a decision to make. So in in organizations, particularly larger companies than, than Howard Bank, it feels to me that we need to find more programs, more ways to look at women and diverse populations in the middle of the organization, whether it's, you know, that that branch manager in the city who has a, runs a great branch, does really well, great with customers, high performer, but isn't being looked at as a candidate for the next level job, whether it's because he or she doesn't have the right network, so they're not part of the club, or they're assuming they must be happy doing what they're doing, as opposed to, hey, how do we identify those people doing a really good job to go to them and say, would you be interested in more? And I think it's becoming more incumbent on companies to say, we think you could do more. Would you like to think about doing more and start to develop those people to pull them up from the middle of the organization to upper middle management, eventually to senior management, whether they're women, whether it's a black woman in, in the urban environment or a Hispanic man, you know, working in operations. I feel like long-term over time, that's what it's going to take. Otherwise, we're never going to make the progress that everybody really says they really want to make. And, and the missing piece is, is not only to be intentional, to seek them out, to recognize that this is a priority, but it's also to recognize that you need to support those individuals differently than you do their, their male counterparts because of whether it's the family obligations or the mindset that says, look, at the end of the day, I'm the one that should stay home if the nanny doesn't show up. Um, that there needs to be a more supportive environment. Um, and, and it's like any other priority. If it were a priority and you saw these obstacles, you would map out a route around those obstacles. But that's not happening. So shifting gears a little bit, but staying with the human capital theme, let's talk about governance of human capital. How involved is a board like yours or other boards you've been involved with? I know you were on a college board or still on a college board, I think. Um, what, what is the role board's role in CEO succession and succession for the C-suite officers? How proactive and engaged should the board be in those kind of important conversations? So boards run, you know, they 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 operate in a very um, challenging environment. I think in that their responsibility to oversee certain elements of a company's strategy and execution of strategy is really very important. But oversight is the operative word, and it's really hard for boards to keep engaged oversight, and I think engaged is a good word that you just used, and yet not step into the, to the management pool of things. It's very, very, very hard. And there are a lot of governance experts now who are really in the process of encouraging boards to be more engaged, perhaps also 
unintentionally encouraging boards to be more involved in day-to-day management. It's a, it's a really tough balancing act. But should succession planning at a broader level than the CEO be one of the strategic priorities of a board? Absolutely. Absolutely. And and I don't just mean, is there a document that says, you know, if three people go down in the plane at the same time that you have a backup plan? I'm talking about long-term succession planning. Right. And again, it should be done through the executive management team. One way to make sure that it happens is to make sure that the CEO knows that that's one of their priorities is what is the succession plan deeper in the organization? And then how does that affect the resources that you're going to spend on development and training of people? But if, if you if you have a, a long-range plan to, to remain independent, certainly you need to be thinking about succession planning at all levels of the company, and you need to get reports on that, and you need to make sure that if it seems like your executive management is struggling with that, that you provide them with the resources to learn more and to um, find out what they need to know to adapt. I, I, I think it's interesting because I think the regulators are beginning to emphasize this a lot Absolutely. more than they Absolutely. So we have another client in a different market, but very similar vintage and size to your bank that we're working with um, and evaluating two internal contenders to be the next CEO because of a pending retirement. And you know, when you were talking a little bit about the, the board role, one of the things that I've observed is most of those board members, I think like many of yours, are founding board members. So they've been on the board 14, 15 years. Or 16, 17, whatever the number is. And, you know, when you're starting a bank, it's like all hands on deck, right? Everyone's doing everything you want them. They're, they're by nature, the board is involved in a lot of things, almost helping to run the bank, get it off the ground, bring your customers. You fast forward, your $2.6 billion company today, you don't want and shouldn't have them doing as much work in the weeds. You know, they should be governing, advising, and I have found that's a really hard transition to make. And I think some of the, the members of the board of this other organization are kind of struggling with it as, as the conversations with CEO succession contenders um, navigate into the waters of the board CEO relationship, right? Because, you know, the way, the way it's been and the way it is kind of with the current CEO it's like, yeah, we need to change that. For multiple reasons, we need to change that, right? And we need some fresh blood on the board too, some new skills, some new talents, you know, and it, it just it just kind of takes me to the point of it's really hard sometimes to deal with boards that are not enlightened or not progressive or not thinking more about longer term for the organization than their own role with their own investment or their own you know, entrepreneurial mindset that was great 10 or 15 years ago, but really isn't as additive as they think it is today. Am I making sense? Yeah, very, very much so. It's a very, very tricky and board succession 
is at least as important as CEO succession. I'm not sure that boards would always agree with that, but succession planning is an equal opportunity talent. You know, everybody needs to be looking at, you know, who is my replacement? What are the skills that are required in the next five years that are different than the skills that were required in the last five years? And that's some of what you're talking about. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, I think, and it's sometimes hard to get people to think about that. We had a client, seven or eight billion dollar company a number of years ago that was sold and they had a wonderful board chair before they did an MOE who was a really talented local CPA. And he was great when they were not a public NASDAQ listed company, they were smaller. You get to seven, eight, 10 billion, you could be a qualified financial expert in the eyes of the SEC or NASDAQ but you really need that CPA who understands having derivatives on your balance sheet and understand some of the more complicated loan loss calculations. And, you know, so you, you fit the criteria, but you needed to really evolve that, that kind of role. I don't know whether you've had any experience, you know, sort of upgrading board members, you know, to bring in new skill sets, but I'm sure it's been challenging. It's, it's very challenging. It's, it's very challenging. It's, a, it's an inherently you know, personal conversation. It's inherently, therefore, emotional. Um, again, it helps if, as part of your governance structure, you're saying consistently, it's not just about management succession, it's about board succession, so that at least people aren't shocked when you have that discussion about the new skill sets that are required. But you can't you can't grow as rapidly as we have without having encountered those sorts of hard discussions along the way. Well, and you said to me once um, a few years back that from the very beginning, your board members understood that they would be evaluated every year for continuing board service, whether that was formal or informal, uh, and that there were no institutionalized seats, there were no lifetime appointments. Which unfortunately, in a lot of other institutions, especially long long history institutions, where well, my dad was on the board, and you know when he died 27 years ago, now I'm on the board, and I expect my kid to be on the board. Like, no, <laughs> but we see a lot. You know, we still see a lot of that. Yeah, but again, it's a tone at the top, and by that I mean you know your governance chair, your your you know if you if you have an executive chair as I am, your lead independent director. Uh, it's about managing expectations. And to me, it starts with, and this is something that's also can be difficult for smaller company boards is reminding people consistently that when they walk into that room, they're representing all of the shareholders. And one of the dynamics of smaller company boards is you think you're representing your shares. That's right. No, you're representing all shareholders and emphasizing that fiduciary duty helps with some of those harder conversations. Right. Well, and this other institution that will remain nameless has three of their board members own almost 30% of the company. I don't think they're going anywhere. So my last question for you, and it's a bit of a loaded question because I have to give you one is, you're the third largest bank, I think, chartered today in the state of Maryland. Um, you're growing. The company's doing really well. It's great culture. Where do you think Howard Bank is four or five years from now? Are you 
the largest bank in Maryland? Are you a multi-state mid-Atlantic player? Are you, dare I say, part of another organization? But ideally, where's Howard Bank, you know, four or five years from today? I, I think ideally Howard Bank is still relevant and impactful five years from today. And our job is to determine what's the best path to ensure that relevance and impactfulness. You know, we when when we started the bank in 2004, I was not particularly thinking of doing acquisitions. I had worked in an M&A function. I had run a strategic planning function. I knew how hard and ugly acquisitions could be from everybody's standpoint, everybody, customers, employees. Um, but if we were going to become relevant and impactful, um, we, we weren't going to see, we realized in 2008, 2009, at the time of the Great Recession, that the economy was probably never going to grow fast enough to achieve that relevance and impactfulness without doing acquisitions. Um, you know, the same with going the public company route. Um, and so you have to seriously ask yourself more than once a year nowadays, what's the best path for us to be relevant and impactful? If it's that we're the second largest, I mean, if you, you know, as well as I do, you tear, tear, tear up the numbers in Maryland, you know, largest locally owned, that'd be, you know, three or four fairly sizable acquisitions. Second, maybe. Um, but but what you have to ask yourself, and I hope what we ask ourselves is, what's the best path? And you literally, every investment banker wants to hear you say this, you literally have to be taking a 360 view of the company all the time. Of course, of course. I really like that term, relevant because I use it often to talk about many of our clients that um, aren't really thinking about it that way. You know, they just kind of want to keep doing things the way they did them for a hundred years. And I don't know that that's always a really good strategy. So you're not, you're not doing it for you. You're doing it for, and you're not just doing it for your shareholders. You're doing it for all of your stakeholders. You know, how are your customers best served? How are your employees best served? And, and wanting to, to be able to do that, you know, in an independent fashion or a shared dependence fashion, if you've done mergers, you know, you're sharing dependency is certainly a route, but you just have to consider all the routes. And I, I don't know at this point in time exactly which of those routes it is, but I think if your focus is, I don't want to be irrelevant and I don't want to lose the impact that I have then it makes it easier to take into consideration all of your alternatives. Well, you've clearly built a very relevant and impactful institution and you and the bank have been recognized for a lot of great work that you've done in the communities. Um, so I'm, I'm honored that you were here today, Marianne. I want to thank you for being generous with your time and sharing your insights. Thanks so much. Well, thank you for all the insights you've shared with me along the way. So thank you, Alan. Well, I appreciate that. You've been listening to the Talent Pool Podcast. I'm Alan Kaplan, your host, founder and CEO of Kaplan Partners. If you'd like to learn more about our firm or these podcasts, visit kaplanpartners.com. Thanks so much for being with us. 